0: This morning, just a few moments ago, we have had the privilege as God's people to set apart a man for the office of deacon. And honestly, deacons came into existence in the early church because the apostles were humble enough to admit something about themselves. We need help. We need help. And some of that probably had to do with the fact that, uh, you know, they spent, had just spent the past three years walking with a man named Jesus. Where Jesus was like a constant daily reminder of how finite and small and powerless and incapable they were on their own. They run out of wine. Help, Jesus! When they have no food in the wilderness... Help us, Jesus. When they're storm-tossed and about to capsize, Jesus, we need your help. When they're unable to cast out demons, Jesus, help us. In fact, that was the kind of the rally cry of humanity as Jesus spent three years walking the surface of this earth. All kinds of sick people, lost people, Sinful people, hurt people, even dead people, crying out, Help, Jesus. And when his time did come, Jesus showed his disciples how helpless they truly were. After they had all abandoned him and left him alone, Jesus walked up the side of a mountain with a cross And there under the jeers and reproach and blasphemes of the crowd, he did battle with death itself. When we were helpless, our help came from the Lord. This is why the apostles weren't ashamed to ask for help in the office of deacon. It's because the cross for them was a daily reminder that we are helpless people. We cannot defeat sin and death on our own. We needed help. But here's the catch for so many of us as Christians. We love to talk about needing help in the past tense. We're willing to admit that somewhere back in our past, we needed help. But This morning, as we look at a very familiar story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, My prayer for each and every one of us is that we would get over the fear of speaking in the present tense. I need help. You need help. We need help. So let's turn together to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And if you're there, let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and ephes Dammin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man. That we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers in Ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he went to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness?' I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again, as before. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would humble our hearts to receive the help that we need from our Lord Jesus, our Helper. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, 1 Samuel 17, perhaps one of the two most famous stories in the whole Old Testament, the other maybe being Noah's Ark. We all know this as the story of two men, David and Goliath. This morning, in the first half of the chapter, we only meet the characters, we size them both up. And the next week, in the second half of the chapter, we get to see them actually enter into battle with one another. 1 Samuel 17 begins by sizing up, first, the enemy. Second, we size up the helper. And then thirdly, we'll size up the real problem here in 1 Samuel 17, which is, number three, the reproach. The enemy, the helper, and the reproach. So as the narrator tells us, the story opens on two armies and they're perched on opposite mountains from one another and there's a valley in between. The Philistines, they muster their troops and brashly they march right across the border of Israel, right into the territory of Judah. So Saul quickly tries to muster his own army. And verse 3 tells us, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And that's when things get interesting. Because out of the camp of the Philistines, verse 4 tells us, we meet the enemy. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And for the next six verses, really all the way up until verse 10, it's like, the narrator is sizing up this enemy for us. He surveys him from head all the way down to toe, inspecting every menacing detail of this hulking mass of a man that stands before us. First, we hear he's six cubits in a span tall, which is about three meters, or almost 10 feet. He's clothed head to toe in bronze. He's got a giant bronze helmet on, so big that it seems to block out the sun. He's clothed from shoulder to knee in armor made of bronze scales that weigh 125 pounds. His shins and his feet are covered in bronze plates. And in his hand, he carries a javelin made of bronze with an iron tip that weighs 15 pounds. And this is the bronze age of civilization, so to say that Goliath is carrying an iron-tipped weapon is the equivalent of saying he's carrying the most advanced weaponry available at the time. As Goliath emerges from the camp of the Philistines and he enters into this valley between the two armies, he looks like a giant, glittering, bronze cobra that has raised to its full height. A shimmering serpent... Covered in impenetrable scales, armed with indefensible weapons of war. And Goliath isn't just some dumb brute, he talks too. This wise, crafty enemy comes into the valley like a fire breathing dragon. His mouth is filled with cursings and bitterness, the venom of asps is under his lips. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are not you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, great. Then we'll be your servants. But if if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy. By the ranks of Israel this day give me a man that we may fight together why does the narrator spend so much time sizing up this great enemy of the people of God why so many verses elaborating the armor and, and even what the armor was made from and about this shield bearer going before him and his javelin and the weight of all of these things that he's carrying why does the narrator go to such great lengths to size up the enemy I think it's grace you see it's God's grace that gives us that gives his people a proper estimation of the enemy we are facing Because so often we like to downplay the problem. We underestimate the crisis. We won't look the enemy right in his face. We won't let our eyes wander from head to shoulders to chest to legs to feet as we survey what really stands against us. Because if we do, we will have to admit the truth about ourselves. Satan loves it when we underestimate him. Because then we fool ourselves into thinking, I got this. I'll be fine. No one else needs to know about my problem, my issues, my sins. I can fight this battle on my own. And the truth is, You don't got this if you will only take five seconds to size up the enemy standing before you. There's a Philistine dragon waiting for you down in that valley. Do you realize that? Do you think that you on your own will go down there and somehow slay him? That sin that you have kept hidden, that crisis you keep pretending isn't a crisis, that problem you want to ignore, when will you open your eyes and look at it in the face? You can't fight it on your own. You need a helper. The problem is that God's people are facing a God-sized enemy, but they rejected their God, whoops, back in chapter 8, and appointed a man-sized king in his place. And here comes Goliath summoning that man. Come on, Israel, who's your champion? Who's your tall guy? Who's your best warrior? Why don't you send him out here and we'll fight. Provide for me a man, Goliath says, and we will do battle together. He's calling out Saul. And what does Saul do? Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. And greatly afraid. Saul is no help for the Israelites. He is doing what he does best. Hiding among the baggage. Not to throw their words back in their face. But this whole scenario with Goliath is really the whole reason why they appointed Saul as king in the first place. Um, I quote, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, end quote. What now? People rejected the Lord from being their king, and they wanted a man as their king, and now they have a man as king, and that man and them recognize he's not going to measure up. And we already know that Saul is head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. So if Saul's not going to be able to cut it, no one will. What now? Verse 12. Now, David. I love how the narrator is always right on time. Now, let me bring a new character in, David. Now, number two, we size up the helper. We need to survey from head to foot this son of Jesse. We're reminded that he's from Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah and while Jesse has eight sons, verse 14 tells us David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David is an errand boy. David is just doing the will of his father. He's shepherding the sheep. He's shuttling messages and care packages back and forth to the men who are really fighting the battle. We size up the helper and we realize the help from the Lord does not come in the form that we might expect. He's not a bigger, badder giant. He's not Goliath 2.0. He appears to us in the pages of Scripture in the person of a young man shepherd boy. And he's not bringing munitions and weapons and armor to the battlefront. He comes like a waiter bringing bread and cheese to his brothers. Friends, the help that we need to conquer our greatest enemy, sin and death, does not come to us in the form of a superhero. Our helper did not appear in the sky like some cosmic... Titan, flexing his muscles before the whole world. He comes in the form of a Galilean carpenter, rejected by his own hometown and his brothers. He comes from a town where people say aloud, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He comes in the form of a servant, a slave, a man who stoops down at dinner and washes the feet of his disciples. He comes in the form of a table waiter serving bread and wine to his brothers. He comes from shepherding his sheep to help us in an impossible battle. He comes at the will and command of his father. You see, the helper comes in a form that is meant to humble us. You were so needy and helpless that you needed a little shepherd boy to come fight your battle for you. You were so helpless you needed a poor Jewish carpenter, a Hebrew slave with nothing to his name, a lonely table waiter to come and save you. And even if you were to strip that man naked, beat him, mock him, ridicule him, whip him, put a crown of thorns on him and nail his hands and feet to a cross, he would still be more help to you than you are to yourself in your best day. friends, do we have eyes to see the helper and are we willing to accept help from him in all his meekness, gentleness, and humility? Whenever we're willing to stop and and have a proper estimation of what's really going on in our life, that these problems, these sins, that death itself is looming off in the future for every single one of us, That they are a Goliath we will never defeat. Are we willing to receive the helper even if receiving him means reproach and shame and humiliation? Because a humble shepherd has to go up on a cross and pour out all of his blood to save us from the mess that we've made. Which brings us finally to number three, the reproach. And this is where our story stops this morning. But it's really a valley of decision for us. Because whether we choose to accept the helper or reject him will determine whether we get to share in the victory that's about to come in the second half of this chapter. So David comes into the camp. He hears the Philistine spell out in no uncertain terms exactly what his intentions are. Verse 10. This is what... Goliath is repeating day after day, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. I defy, I bring reproach. I am bringing disgrace upon Israel in the, in, before all the world. And the Israelites know it. And David starts up a conversation with one of the soldiers next to him. Verse 25, he knows the problem. He knows what Goliath is doing. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who comes up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. Then verse 26, David knows what's going on. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is none other than about bringing reproach and disgrace upon God's people and more specifically upon the name of the Lord. It's about rubbing the name of the Lord in dung before the whole world. Forty days straight, this Goliath has marched out and cursed the God who made the heavens and the earth, taunted his people, shouted all kinds of blasphemies and curses, and no one has done anything about it. Who, David asks, will take away the reproach of Israel? It brings reproach upon the name of the Lord when His people are overpowered by sin. When His people live defeated lives, when for 40 days, 40 years, they are overcome by temptation to pride and disunity and greed, and power-grabbing, and lust, and sexual immorality. But just as David is contemplating the gravity of this situation, his brother butts in. Verse 28. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Eliab gets angry, but what makes him angry? That Goliath has come down now 40 days in a row, cursing and swearing against the God he claims to worship. That day after day, he personally is experiencing defeat in the face of his greatest enemy, that he is bearing great reproach. Is that what makes him angry? No. He gets angry that his brother finds out about it. Go home, David. You don't belong here. We don't need your help. The reproach. Eliab doesn't even want David to hear about his problem. You see, Eliab's response tells us more about him than it does David. Even the insinuation, even the question that would even maybe raise the suggestion that Eliab is not self-sufficient, that he might need someone's help, even that is deeply insulting to him. Friends, when we are bearing reproach and disgrace, how often do we act like Eliab, for 40 days you've tried to win that battle on your own against that sin or that crisis or that problem in your life, and you go on out to that battlefield every day, and every day Satan growls at you and you go running back into temptation and defeat once more. When will you and I have the humility or even just the desperation to ask for help? That not asking for help thing that you've been doing, how is it going for you? Are you experiencing great victory in your life? Does it feel like victory in Jesus when you come in the doors of this church Sunday after Sunday and you lie to your brothers and sisters when they ask you how are things going and you say, I'm good. Just like Eliab. I'm good. I don't need your help. What are we trying to protect here? What does Eliab even have left to defend? His pride? His humiliation? Heaven forbid that anyone should know that we need help. You know, I bet Eliab would have received help from someone who was bigger and and better than him. You know? If, if, If a Hebrew Goliath would have marched into the camp, I think he and all his buddies would have rallied right behind him. But the helper comes in a form that humiliates him. It's his little brother. Brothers and sisters, we like to believe that we live in a God-helps-those-who-help-themselves kind of world. But the truth is, the truth of the gospel is that God helps those who admit they are helpless. We have to own our approach before God and the whole world before the helper can take it away. This is the truth that most of us acknowledge in theory, but don't like to say in front of other people in reality. Even with his hands and feet nailed to a cross, Jesus is infinitely more capable to fight our battles than we are. This is the reproach that Eliab and the rest of the Israelites were unwilling to admit. And it's the reproach that David the Helper has come to take away. Eliab brings even greater disgrace on himself because he begins to accuse his brother of great sin just for showing up, just for asking a question. How are you guys doing? <laughs> he pretends to understand his brother's heart. You know, when we're, the mo- when we're the least charitable with other people and their motives, chances are there's actually some deep sin and shame in our own heart we're trying to hide. Why? We try to justify our own hidden sins, our own hidden reproaches by pointing a finger at them and saying, Well, what's hidden in your heart? It's probably worse than mine. What's the point in comparing who is more reproachable in the eyes of God? In the body of Christ, aren't we supposed to be a confessing people? A people who are not afraid to pour out the deepest secrets and reproach of our heart, trusting that as we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive and to wash it all away. And that's when we have true fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters. In the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our brother, who takes away our reproach. I wonder sometimes if I've bred a congregation of people who don't like to ask for help because honestly, I don't like to ask for help. I'm terrible at it. We Christians love to say, yeah, we're sinners. You know, I walked an aisle that one day a long time ago and I admitted I needed help. How many of us are willing to speak in the present tense? I need help. I need Jesus Christ, my helper, today, this day. I need his body, the church, to know about the battle I'm facing, to know about the reproach I'm keeping captive in my heart, the disgrace I don't want to admit because I can't fight this enemy alone. Friends, may we be willing to admit our reproach and gain confidence and trust Not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that even though We would have done everything we could to prevent you from going up on the cross because we just couldn't believe that our sin would merit such a terrible thing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you pushed us aside and you marched into the battle and you conquered sin and death for us. We pray that we would not be ashamed to have your brother as our helper, our constant friend, And that you would extend help to us through deacons, through table waiters, through servants, through fellow church members, people who love us. And you want to help, Lord, we pray that we would be willing to share so that we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.